This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Worship with West Concord as we gather together online. So glad that you're able to join us. We're continuing with our series, Inside Out, Doing Discipleship as God Intended. You know, that's one of the things that the current church in America is struggling with is doing discipleship the way God intended for us to do it. And we've been talking about how churches grow and how even Christians grow from the inside out. We're oftentimes more excited about the outward things, the outward appearances, the outward work, that we forget that spirituality is an inside thing. And not only that, but within a church, the closer we grow to Christ, the better soul winners we're going to be, thus fulfilling the church's purpose. So we've been talking about that subject, and we've been in John chapter 15, where we have been camping here for a couple of weeks. We're going to go one more week into this. But uh, we're talking about living in God's vineyard. Because when you think about discipleship, you think of of a gathering or a group of uh, people doing life together, as the saying is today. And last week, we talked about the different relationships that John 15 uh, brings out. The first one we looked at is our relationship with God. And today, we're going to look at our relationship with each other in the church, in the vineyard. We talked about how God and our relationship with Him is a life-giving and affirming relationship and it causes us to bear much fruit. At least that's the ideal. So as we continue this metaphor of the vineyard, we're going to look at our relationship with each other. Now remember, John chapter 15 has uh, some implications to it because it is the the morning after or the night of, depending on when uh, the timetable is calculated, when Jesus has met with his disciples for the last time, he's observed uh, the Passover in the upper room. Uh, they are finished with it. They're in the garden now walking, most likely late night, early, very early morning, just before Jesus is to be taken and crucified. And he's leaving them with some last minute instructions, encouragements, call them what you will, challenges. But he knows that he will form the church through them after his ministry. And so he's giving them some, some things that they look about, look some things that they need to look for rather, and what they need to understand concerning how they're going to thrive and make it in this world. So they're talking about relationships, relationship with God. Today, we're going to look at the relationship with each other. And then later, we're going to look at our relationship with the world. But I want to talk this morning about the idea that we are in a relationship, not just with God, we have that relationship through faith in Jesus Christ, but also a relationship as the church of Jesus Christ with other believers, with one another. We are to do things together. We are to enact and interact together. And so there is oftentimes, though, things that get in the way, busy lifestyles, crowded schedules, school, work, family. And more often than not, we get separated, especially during this whole pandemic situation where we've had to pause gatherings for a while and we've had to go online like we're doing right now where we cannot be together. But you know what? There's still the telephone. There's still the computer doing what we're doing now. Because understand this, Satan does not not want the church 
to be a unified front. As a matter of fact, I have a quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who lived back in the 19th century, a phenomenal preacher uh, in the city of London. And he says this about Satan's uh, hatred for a unified church. He says, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He goes on to say he attacks far more, he attaches rather, far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. In other words, Satan knows how important it is for us to communicate things of God and, and, and communicate and pray together. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. I mean, we see it all the time in the landscape of the church. We see churches fussing and fighting. We see churches splitting. We see Christians getting mad at one church and then going to another church. Uh, it seems like we can't keep the family together. We have a hard time with that. And oftentimes the only interaction we have is on Sunday morning, if we come to Sunday school or small groups during the worship service, and maybe on Wednesday night. But you know what? As God's people, we need to be involved with each other more than that. In the chapter we're going to look at this morning or today, in John chapter 15, Jesus says in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You know, this is the whole idea. We're to love one another. Now understand this about the word love, because I know right now you're thinking, what is this, a Valentine sermon? No, not at all. This is not the romantic type of love. This is not the feelings-oriented type of love. This is that godly love that is translated from the Greek word agape, which refers to a special kind of love. As a matter of fact, Augustine, the great saint, said this. He said, what does love look like? Now, he's talking about that godly type love. He said, it has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and to the needy. It has the eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear sighs and the sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. In other words, it's not some feelings-oriented, drippy kind of thing. I know the church loves that kind of stuff. The reason why is because it's easy. We love to talk about how much we love God or love each other, but more often than not, it's just talk. But doing discipleship the way God intended as we live in His vineyard means that we do have a relationship with God and with each other, and that requires fellowship with one another. And love is an active thing. It's an action rather than a feeling. So as we get ready to jump in John chapter 15, keep that understanding of love in mind as we go through this passage together. But first, let's pray and ask God to bless. Heavenly Father, we thank you for yet another time to meet together online. And Father, we thank you that also West Concord and many other churches are meeting in person. And Father, while we may be separated because of a pandemic, or we may be separated because of other things that are going on despite the pandemic, Father, we can still communicate via our telephones, via our computers or devices. Father, there are ways to stay in touch, just like we're doing now. We thank you for that technology and those gifted and, and able to help us with that. But Father, we thank you for most importantly, the personal touch 
Thank you that we can gather on Sundays and on Wednesdays now, that we can see one another. And very soon, hopefully this pandemic will be lifted and we can hold hands, we can shake hands, we can hug one another. And Lord, we can demonstrate love in many, many ways as we seek to serve you and to serve each other. We ask all this in Jesus' name as we open your word. May you teach us. Amen. So in John chapter 15, we've looked at the relationship between God and us, between the church and Jesus Christ. Now as we get into chapter 15 and we pick it up in verse 8, we're going to look at our relationship with one another, our fellowship with one another, if you will. Because you cannot have discipleship unless you have contact, unless you're discipling someone, unless you're involved in his or her life. And so therefore, we're going to look at how love motivates that. And Jesus wanted to communicate that as he was getting ready. He knew he was going to depart the world through crucifixion. And as we pick this up in verse 9, actually, he says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Let me stop there because we're talking about love's commandment here. And when we he see Jesus commanding us to love one another and to abide in his love, that sounds so ethereal. It sounds so mystical and esoteric as though only a few very spiritual people can understand this. As a matter of fact, we kind of like to make things in Christianity rather mystical and airy because, again, we have no accountability for it. We just revel and get titillated in all the mystery. And we need to realize that, yes, there is a mystical aspect of God's love. It's not something in a sense that you can taste, feel, touch, smell, or hear, but it is something that can be experienced. And that brings us to this material application. So it's mystical in the sense that it is from heaven to us. And he says to abide in his love, but he gives us very material and concrete understanding of how that is to be applied. He says in verse 10, here it is. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You see, many people, when they look at the Bible, they say, well, the Old Testament is full of laws and commandments, but the New Testament is full of love. Well, to some extent that's true, but there's tremendous amounts of love expressed by God to his people in the Old Testament. And here we see there are commandments in the New Testament given from the lips of Christ to the ears of his disciples that he expected them to follow. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. There's nothing mystical about that aspect of it. It's very material. He says, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus was being obedient to his father and thus he requires us to be obedient to him if we are going to abide rather in his love. I understand the word obedience is not a word people like today. Uh, parents shy away from it. Teachers shy away from it. It just sounds so draconian and tyrannical. Oh, we have to obey and we have to talk about obedience. But the fact of the matter is there are commands in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that, yes, we are to obey. And Jesus said, if you love me and if you're going to abide in my love, just as I keep my father's commandments and I abide in his love. So if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Look what he says in verse 11. I love this. He says, these things have I spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. 
So keeping commandments necessarily is not a burdensome thing. If you're focused and rooted in Jesus, he is the vine and you are the branch and you're finding life and sustenance from him. And if you're abiding in him and he is abiding in you, then keeping his commandments is not a burdensome thing. It's a joyful thing. I want you to notice here that he talks about first enduring joy. You know, we think of happiness. And again, we did a whole sermon series on this and from the book of Philippians. Uh, happiness depends on one, what's happening. And sometimes good things happen. Sometimes bad things happen. So j happiness is sort of like a roller coaster or an elevator. It's up and down. But joy, when we root it in the Lord, that sense of purpose, that sense of fulfillment, that peace that comes from God, that is something that can endure as we obey him and as we live in his love through that obedience. So he says, my joy, listen, if you abide in my love, this is what's going to happen, that my joy will remain in you. That joy is not going to be fleeting. Again, it's not up to what's happening. It's, it depends upon what God has done for you and will do for you, but it does depend on your obedience and mine. Not only is, does he say that it will be enduring, but he also says that your joy may be full. It's completely encompassing. You know, it's not dependent upon things. It's not dependent upon circumstances. It's not one part of your life versus another part of your life. God's joy when you are living and abiding in Christ through obedience to him, that joy fills every aspect of your life, even when things are difficult, even when the storms of life are very, very, very difficult to handle. God can still bring you that peace, that comfort, that purposefulness, that completeness. That's what that joy is. And it comes from him. And as we obey him and as we keep his commandments and we abide in his love by doing so, love's commandment, therefore that joy is enduring. Not only that, but it encompasses everything. Even through the difficult times, that joy is evident. You know, it's oftentimes we think of how can you command love, but Jesus here does. That's why he ends this passage in verse 12. He says, this is my commandment. In case you didn't understand his commandments and what did Jesus command? And there are many in the gospels. You can read them. But his main commandment is right here. This is my commandment. What? That you love one another. And that word love is the Greek word agape. And again, it's a word which means a self-sacrificing love. It has less to do with emotion and more to do with action. Again, as Augustine said, it has feet, it has hands, it has ears, it has eyes to look out for your brother and sister in Christ and for the lost and dying world. So if we're going to actually fulfill discipleship in the way God intended it, if we're going to grow from the inside out, we need to follow love's commandment. Love one another, abide in Christ, and have enduring joy, have encompassing joy. So he's talking about love's commandment. Then he moves into love's commitment. Now he talks about, look at what he says here. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you in verse 12. Now, how has he loved us? How has he just demonstrated that love? Well, this is where we see love's commitment as we pick it up in verse 13. Notice he says, and this is a very well-known passage, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And then he says in verse 14, you 
are my friends. You know, it's amazing. Can you imagine if a famous sports figure decided to be your friend or somebody's favorite movie actor or television star or somebody that you highly respected said, you know what, I want to be your friend. Here, the Son of God, God in the flesh, tells his disciples, you are my friends. No greater love has someone than this, than a man or someone lay down his life for his friends. Notice Jesus' commitment was such the very next day, he's going to follow through with it. Jesus laid down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for us. There's no greater commitment. There's no other kind of love that, that matches that. You know, it's one thing to take someone out for dinner. It's one thing to purchase them a gift or to, or, or to help them with a need or to do a chore for them. But the greatest form of love is to literally die for someone, to be willing to lay down your life for them. And so that's love's commitment that Jesus is demonstrating. And so he says that we should love as he loved us. So if he laid his life down for us, certainly he's in a sense asking us to lay down our lives for him. He says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. There's that phrase again. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing. You know, servants aren't privy to the machinations and working of the household or the important details of life. He says, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. See, that speaks of our, our relationship with Jesus and our fellowship with Jesus. And yes, we are to lay down our lives for him, but not just for him but for each other as well. You know, we're, we've been reading a book about discipleship among the pastoral staff here at West Concord. And one of the things that it talks about being a disciple and discipling is it involves the surrender of a life. You know, it's not that you can make time for discipleship. It's not that you try to fit discipling or being discipled in your schedule. Our lives should be laid bare before Jesus Christ. We need to die to self and so that we might rise and live for him. We need to lay down our lives for him just as he laid down his life for us. And in so doing, we then are able to be discipled. It means it's, it's, it's our life's goal. Our life's desire is to grow and become like Christ. And Christ laid down his life. That's love's commitment. And so if we love him and if we obey his commandments and love each other as he loved us, then we need to be willing to lay our lives down as well. It means that, in other words, we're not on a schedule. We're not trying to fulfill a goal. We're not trying to uh, set this thing up as some sort of program. No, no. It's a lifestyle. It's an ongoing decision, an ongoing choice. And yes, it will radically change your life. It'll change your family. It'll change your goals. It's not that you'll make new goals. It'll radically change your life. Your goals will now be Jesus' goals. Your decisions will be made by Him. Your lifestyle will be ordered by Him. That is love's commitment. That's the kind of love He's talking about. It's not just a hug. It's not just a gift. It's not just a pat on the head or a nice sweet card. It is literally giving your life away to Him and to others because He gave His life for you and for others. That's love's commitment. Love's commandment is to love as you're loved. How are you loved? That's love's commitment. Love as He loved. 
But then he goes on to talk about love's commission. Well, how does that play out? Well, notice we talked about earlier fruitfulness. Well, he says in verse 16, he said, you did not choose me, but I have chosen you talking about his disciples. He chose his disciples for a specific mission. He says, you didn't choose me, but I have chosen you, verse 16, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. We're back in the vineyard again. The whole idea of our existence as believers in this planet is to go and bear fruit for him. Remember last week we talked about what that fruit is. In a more agrarian setting, that fruit is literally bearing other Christians. Again, orange tree bears bear oranges, apple trees bear apples, uh, Christian trees bear Christians. As we are connected to the vine, Jesus, and we are the branches, the fruit that we are to grow is new believers, new people coming to Christ. We've lost that sense of urgency in the church today. No longer are we burdened and broken for our neighbor, our fellow student, our coworker, our friend, our family member who doesn't know Jesus. And remember, if someone dies not knowing Jesus as his or her savior, they will be separated from God forever in a literal place that we refer to and the Bible refers to as hell. We've lost the urgency of that. We don't like to talk about hell because it's hard and scary and harsh. But understand this, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Jesus spoke more of hell than any other writer of both the Old Testament and New Testament. The reason why, because Jesus doesn't want anybody to go. He had an urgency and he was trying to leave within his heart of his disciples that urgency. He said, listen, you didn't choose me. I've chosen you and appointed that you appointed you rather that you should go and bear fruit. Get out there and share the gospel. But also other kinds of fruit could be the gifts of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. Galatians chapter five, character traits such as joy, peace, patience, godliness. And you can go and read them in Galatians chapter five. There are nine altogether. They're called the fruit of the spirit. One singular fruit consisting of these five characteristics that the spirit bears in our lives as we are obedient to his leading. And then another kind of fruit just speaks of the righteous deeds that we do, the kind things that we do, the good things that we do, the moral things that we do. When we reach out to help other people and we do help the poor and the needy and those in trouble. But nonetheless, we are to bear fruit. We are to be doing that. But immediately right now, the desire is to go out and bring people to Jesus. Bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. Because without him, you know, if they slip away from this world and listen... None of us are guaranteed of tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed of this afternoon or tonight. We could slip away into eternity at any time. Do you know Jesus as Savior? If you do, praise the Lord. But what about your family, your friends, those that you love? Do you have an urgency for their souls? He says we need to go and bear fruit. That's love's commission that we are fruitful. Not only that, but we are faithful. He says in prayer, he says that your fruit should remain in whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. Remember we talked about this earlier. We need to be fruitful. We need to be faithful in prayer, in prayer, especially faithful. And when I say faithful, I'm not just talking about praying 
regularly on a schedule. We ought to do that. But faithful as we walk with him to pray in his name. Again, this, this idea of pray what you will and get what you want is not a blank check for God to write us anything and give us anything we want. No, no, no. It's when we are aligned with his will, when we take our will and line it up with his wills and his will and desires, then he begins to answer those prayers in the affirmative because we want what he wants. We want what he wants. And that is the key. So we need to be faithful people of faith in our prayers, not only our prayers, but also our partnership. He goes on to say that we need to be fruitful and we need to partner with each other and do that. See, folks, listen, we need one another. When we went through 1 Peter, we talked about how the church needed to stand together in unity and love. We need each other. We just can't go and scatter off on Sunday or on Wednesday and forget each other for four or five days. No, no, we need to check on each other. We need to find someone that we know is struggling with, with their faith or they don't know Christ, and we need to come alongside them and make intentional time to go and spend time with them and to bring them along. We need to study the Word of God together. If all you're getting is the Sunday morning or the Bible study on Sunday morning or the Wednesday night Bible study, you're, you're not doing well spiritually. It's the same thing of eating. You know, we all eat three meals a day. Some people eat more, uh, but we eat every day nutritional things to keep us going, to keep up our strength. It's that way spiritually. You just can't live off of a Sunday meal and a Wednesday snack. You can't do that. You have to do time in the word together, sit around the table and eat a meal and sit around the Bible and feast on the truth. And this is how we do discipleship. This is how we should do it. So I want you to think about this, this, this morning or tonight or whenever you're watching this, who in your life needs to walk closer to the Lord? Maybe they know Jesus, but their life isn't what it should be. And maybe you're striving to please and honor God and you're watching them struggle, maybe you need to come alongside of them. Who is that? Hopefully, as I'm saying this, a, a face has popped up in your mind. A name has echoed in your mind's ear. You, you've been burdened. Maybe it's a family member, or maybe it's a coworker, or somebody at school. Maybe it's a neighbor down the street, somebody in the church who is struggling in their faith. Maybe they need Christ, and you need to be in their lives. Or maybe you're struggling in the faith. Maybe you're having a difficult time and you need somebody, perhaps as you look up, who is maybe doing a little better, going along a little stronger. Maybe you need to come alongside of them and say, hey, I need you in my life. We need one another. That's love's commission so that we might bear fruit. We need to partner with one another as well as pray for one another. And so again, it's basically you say, but pastor, my life is so busy. I've got so much going on. I've got this. I've got that. I've got the other thing. Well, again, it comes to laying your life down sacrificially the way Christ laid his life down for you and I. It doesn't mean you don't do those things, but we begin to set different priorities in our lives. You know, how often do we let discipleship, Bible study, growth, spiritual uh, growth stagnate because we set it off to the side because we haven't just got time for it. Listen, if we've laid our lives down for Jesus Christ, we have died to self. Therefore, we need to focus 
on living for him and yes, living for others. He gives love's command. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another. This is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. It's not a mystical thing. Oh, there's mystical aspects to it, but that's a material application. And yes, he commands us to love. You say, I can't be commanded to love. Again, you may not be able to be commanded to feel a certain way, but you can be, and I can be commanded to act a certain way. And agape love is an act, not necessarily a feeling. And that love commitment, love's commitment is laying your life down for him and for others because he has laid down his life for you and for those others as well. Love's commission is to be fruitful and to be faithful, faithful in prayer and faithful in partnership. So as we finish this, what does it all mean? What about this love? How does this love work? Well, R.C. Sproul, a wonderful apologist and scholar and uh, theologian said this. He said, in the New Testament, love is more of a verb than it is a noun. It has more to do with acting than feeling. The call to love is not so much a call to a certain state of feeling as it is to a quality of action. In other words, we can't wait around until we feel loving or we feel all warm and fuzzy. No, no. We need to go out and act. Just as Jesus act, he died for the unlovely. I didn't deserve his death for me. Neither did you. There was nothing lovely about me. There was nothing that drew him to me. The only thing that drew him to me and to you was his love for us. And it's that same kind of love that should motivate us, should draw us, should impel us to go out and find someone to worship with, to minister with, to get involved with, and to disciple. Because that's how we disciple God's way, the way God intended. And if we do that, if we draw closer to the Lord and draw people closer to Him, then we will all begin to mind the things He minds, love the things He loves, choose what He chooses. Our will will be lined up with His to the best of our human capabilities. And boy, what a soul-winning church we would be. What a soul-winning Christian we would be. But we need that sense of urgency. We need to set that tone. And we need to get motivated. Because love is a verb. It's, it's an action word. It means go, do, act, give. That is what biblical agape love is. And that's what Jesus left with his disciples. He said in the first eight verses, seven verses, listen, you've got to, you've got to have a good relationship with God. Plug into me, plug into the vine. He says, but you also have to demonstrate that love to one another. It's a command, love one another. Jesus said, this is my commandment. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. Do it. Otherwise, you are not living in God's will. You are not being what God intends you to be as a believer. So we need to do that. We also need to follow through with love's commitment. In order to fulfill that, we need to lay down our life, give it all to Him, just as He gave His all to us. And we need to reach out with that and let that change our lives for the benefit of the church and the world. And that's our commission, to go and bear fruit in the world. To bear fruit, to be faithful. Faithful prayer warriors, faithful partners in ministry. Because love is a verb. I leave you with this last passage, John 15, verse 17. The passage that Jesus ends with, he says again, one more time, These things I 
command you that you love one another. And again, he's not just talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling. He's not just talking about, oh, I love my church and I love my pastor and I love my friend. And I, no, no, this is not something that is spoken as much as it is done. Go do it. Do it now. Do it now. There's somebody in your neighborhood. There's somebody in your family. There's somebody in this church or your church, if you're not part of West Concord, that needs this love. They need you to come alongside of them. I'll tell you this. In my own personal life, when I got saved, I would not be here preaching the word had it not been for three or four guys who showed me love when I got saved. Now, they didn't fall all over me and get all emotional and dripping and up, but they found me. They brought me into their fold. They became my friends and they taught me. They taught me in two ways. I got to watch how they lived and they taught me how to understand scripture. And I thank God for these guys. Their names were David, Gary, and Greg. And while we may be separated by distance and, and life has moved all of us to different places, I will always owe them a debt of gratitude and appreciation because they loved me the way God prescribed here. And I tell you this, and I'll tell them this if they get a chance to listen to this, and they know who I'm talking about. If it weren't for them, I may not be doing what I'm doing today. You can be that person in someone else's life. Go and do it. These things I command you that you love one another. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, we thank you for how clear it is, how, how challenging it is. Father, you don't leave us guessing if we treat it honestly. And Father, the way we do church today, the way we've done church for the last several decades... Father, we've grown apart. Oh, we come together and worship. We sit in our Sunday school classes, our small groups. But Father, we're no longer interacting with each other spiritually. We're no longer bringing ourselves alongside of each other to help teach or to be taught. Father, we're relying on professional clergy. We're relying on a handful of people. When you've already told us we are to be those people. It's not the clergy's job to disciple the church. It's the clergy's job to teach, but it's not the clergy's job to do it per se, although we do. It's everyone's job to minister, to disciple. Oh, Father, I pray that you'll help us to understand that. Help us to love one another so profoundly that we're in, involved in changing their lives for the better, for good. May we live out your commandment to love one another. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So go out, find somebody, love them the way God intended, and I pray that it'll change your life as well as theirs. Take care. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.